As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, we've been talking and writing about this a lot, which is kind of weird, because essentially we're talking and writing about nothing. Like, nothing is happening in markets, at least when it comes to a very specific measure of volatility. Yeah, it's definitely... uh... It's kind of like the uh, Seinfeld markets, I guess, right? Where the uh, thing that's going on is that nothing is going on. That's good. That's good. I yeah, like that I show. Just made, I, I, I just made that up. <laughs> okay. Um, but no, you know, we've talked about this on this podcast before, how we have this, uh, you know, we have a morning call that you and I participate on that you lead very ably, I might Aww. add, where we talk amongst our, many of us in the newsroom about what's going on in markets. And every day it's like, eh, Kind of not much. Yeah. Every day the story is usually about how nothing is actually moving that significantly in markets. And the thing we look to when it comes to gauging market movement or market volatility is, of course, something called the VIX index, which occasionally gets called things like Wall Street's fear gauge. Uh, a lot of people take issue with that name. The uh, The VIX is one of these sort of technical things in markets that seems to have some popular currency. There are probably people who are sort of tangentially aware that this thing called the VIX exists. and But there's a lot of debate about what it really is. Most people probably have no idea how it's measured, whether it really signals anything useful about anything at all. And so in addition to being widely quoted and widely discussed, it's also extremely controversial. Right. So today we are going to dig into all the details about the VIX, how it works, but we're also going to dig into why market volatility is so low as judged by this one measure. And I'm not talking about things like, oh, well, we have good economic growth, so people are you know, relatively comfortable right. with their investment positions. I'm talking about the actual market for trading volatility, because in many ways, volatility is now an asset class in and of itself. Right. This is an important concept that a lot of people talk about. 
But, uh, you know, a lot of these things are not particularly well understood. What does that mean that volatility is an asset class? Or more specifically, what is volatility itself? What, uh, you know, we throw the word around a lot, but I doubt a lot of people really have a firm grasp of what that is. So I'm confident that our guest today is going <laughs> to help us uh, clear away the smoke on all these topics and actually shed some light on what can be a very confusing subject. All right. Well, let's get into it. Our guest today is Pravit Chinta Wangbanich. He is head of derivatives strategy at Macro Risk Advisors, and he writes about volatility on a uh, basically every day. Pravit, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Pravit, let's start with Joe's question, because I think that's the big one and it's the right one to be asking. What exactly is volatility? So when people talk about volatility, they're either referring to what we call implied volatility. So that's essentially the market cost of volatility or what's sometimes called realized volatility or in essence, which is how much are markets actually moving. Um, so the VIX, which you, you guys have been discussing, is a measure of implied volatility. It's a measure of what people are willing to pay for volatility, or essentially, you know, it's the market's uh, gauge or measure of, of the cost of, of owning volatility. Let's dive into that a little bit more, that specific question. So volatility, intuitively, is it just a measure of the degree to which markets are going up and down. So it's not necessarily a directional idea. But if you imagine a sort of oscillation or you imagine a sort of a, one of those EKGs that measures your heartbeat, it's a kind of a measure of how dramatically the line is just moving. Absolutely. And another way that volatility can can be measured or another thing that it measures is the potential for large moves. So for mm. example, you know, ahead of the US elections or ahead of the French elections, you also had volatility rise a little bit, not necessarily because people were expecting high volatility, but maybe because they were expecting one large move from a future event. So break it down for our listeners. What does it mean to be long volatility and what does it mean to be short volatility? So what does it mean to be long volatility? It's a really interesting question. You know, people often talk about buying volatility, like they see the VIX at 11 or 10 or 9 or, you know, God knows how low it's going to get. And they say like, oh, I want to own volatility. That seems like a really good trade to me. Um, but the thing is, you never really own volatility. You know, I like to say you, you can't own volatility, you only rent it. Mm. Um, so what that means is that how do you go out and buy the VIX? Well, you can't just go and go to the store and buy one share of VIX and, and that's that, right? Um, in reality, volatility is traded through option contracts. And, and that's really, I, I guess, the, the key to understanding volatility trading is that it's, it's linked to options. Options are time-limited contracts. Every bet on volatility is implicitly time-limited. Our listeners are very, very smart. But nonetheless, I sometimes <laughs> think, that, you know, I, st I would never want to insult the intelligence of our listeners who are the smartest of all podcast listeners, clearly. But just to really simplify this, you talk about options and they're time limited. So they're essentially an option is essentially a bet that an underlying asset. We're talking about a stock here just to keep it simple. will hit some level by some time. And if volatility is higher then that makes it more likely that the, that underlying asset can travel to that mm -hmm. point. So if we have a share of IBM and we are betting that it's going to go from $100 to $125, in theory, the higher volatility is, 
the more likely it is it will travel that distance in that defined area of time. It will mm -hmm. move 25%. And so to own volatility and to go long volatility, what you essentially do is you're betting that you know these options will rise in value because the underlying assets will travel to these points faster in time. Is that sort of the idea? That you know, that is a really good way of explaining it. Um, you know, so to get back to Trace's questions, how do you how do you own how do you what does it mean to be long volatility or short volatility? Um, yes, uh, buying options is one way to do it. When you trade an options contract, there's something which is called the implied volatility. You can think of this as, again as the market's expectation for future volatility. That's that's priced into these contracts. When you when you pay, uh, I don't know, a, a couple dollars for an S and P put option, there's implicitly a volatility that you're paying, right. and that is how one goes long volatility. But I think you know, I don't, I want to digress, but I think a very important concept is that because options are time limited um, the, the 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 concept of decay uh, mm. or rent or, or burden or carry cost whatever you want to call it is it's factors into being long volatility and that's super important uh, in other words if I buy a, a put option on the S&P so in other words a contract that's that will pay out if the market um, goes below ends below a certain level at some point in time if the market never goes below that level then I just lose my money uh, on the put option and you know, if I want to be long volatility, essentially one way of doing it would be to constantly buy these put options, but the market never sells off, then I'm just going to keep losing money on these things. So in order to be long volatility, there is a carry cost, right? We know that the VIX can never go to zero. Options can never be worthless. Therefore, there's always going to be some carry cost for every day that I'm long mm. volatility or owning the VIX. I'm, I'm paying away a rent or, or a decay. And, and that's key to understanding uh, volatility trading. Likewise, if I'm short volatility, I'm, I'm actually being paid rent. I'm earning carry. That leads quite nicely into what I was going to ask next, which is given that you have this carry cost when it comes to buying volatility or renting volatility, as you put it, walk us through the ecosystem here. Like what kind of players are actually buying and what kind of players are actually selling? Mm-hmm. So traditionally, I mean, if we think about option contracts, traditionally the buyer of volatility is going to be um, like institutional a asset managers, like hedge funds who want to protect their portfolio. So, okay, let's say I own, I don't know, a billion dollars worth of stock. Well, how can I protect it or how can I outperform the market and, and justify you investing in me versus going investing in index funds? Well, one way to do it is for me to own hedges, right? For me to say, for example, own put options on the S&P so that the next time we get 2008 or 2011 or some kind of you know market volatility event, um, I will outperform in, in, in the event of a sell-off. So that's been the traditional buyer of volatility is essentially, um, you know, think big asset managers. Um, there's also uh, like insurance, like variable annuity programs that need to pay out a certain amount. Um, those, those people are, are often implicit buyers of volatility, but that's kind of traditionally been the institutional bid um, for for basically financial protection or financial insurance. And then the sellers? So the sellers of volatility have typically been the banks, like the dealers, right? So if you know if you're hedge fund X and you want to go buy options, then you you quote up your dealer and say like, hey, I want to buy these put options, and they'll more than likely be happy to sell them to you. But uh, I think like. I think what you guys are getting at is the concept of volatility as an investable asset class, right. um, and especially post two thousand eight, um, you know, with new regulations, um, banks actually can't take as much risk as they used to 
be able to, um, a lot of that volatility selling risk has now been um, laid off to, uh, I guess, other people on the buy side. So before, whereas it would mainly be, I guess, like the dealers uh, taking the other side of all these financial insurance bets, a lot of times now it is other buy side institutions coming in to basically, you know, instead of investing in stocks or investing in bonds or, mm. or what have you, they're... I don't know. They're basically becoming sellers of insurance, and and that's how they you know develop deliver their alpha. Now, uh, we started off the introduction by talking about how volatility is very low. How we, every day we have these chats about what's going on in the market. Well, there's nothing going on in the market. You've been uh, you've spent a career trading derivatives and analyzing volatility and all this stuff. So, what do you tell us? characterize the current market environment, put it into perspective relative to what you've seen so that when we tell our listeners Oval is very low these days, what does that actually mean? How does it compare to six years ago, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. 20 years ago, whatever? Mm -hmm. Well, you can look at the VIX and I, I think, you know, I'm not going to get into how the VIX is been poorly understood, but essentially the VIX is a measure of, of uh, short-term options pricing. That's really all it measures. It, I don't think it should be used to measure, uh, you know, fear or, uh, you know, right. like economic, you know, whatever. Uh, it's just really a measure of, of short-dated option prices. And if we look at the VIX, uh, it's really back to uh, 2014, 2007 levels, um, uh, kind of like mid, uh, sorry, 2007, mid-2007. Um, uh, early 1990s levels. Um, if you look at realized vol, so how much stocks are moving, I think that's really interesting um, because I think this is the probably the longest stretch of realized vol we've of low realized vol we've had um, since I want to say like the early mid 1990s. I mean, it's one thing for for volatility to be to be low for like a week or two, but it's another thing for for volatility to be low for like six months at a time or one year at a time. Um, and we really haven't seen this, I, I guess, since uh, I guess for the since the pre-crisis period and also since uh, the early 1990s. Um, and I think the common thread there is really that uh, if you look back at those those two other low vol periods is that the Fed was hiking rates. And do I think mm. that the Fed hiking rates causes low volatility? No, I don't. I think it's coincident. I think the Fed hikes rates when the economy is good. When the economy is good, realized vol tends to be, inequities tends to be a little bit lower. And I think mm. that ultimately then leads into you know, implied vol and the VIX being lower. I want to uh, take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. And we're back with Pravit Chingtuang Vanich of Macro Risk Advisors. You know, there was something that you said that was very interesting uh, in the first half where you talked about how a lot of the vol sellers these days are people who, you know, it's kind of an alternative to uh, straight up investing. And so that you have some of these people who might have been portfolio managers now making money selling vol. And in a sense, a diversified portfolio is a short vol strategy without uh, buying derivatives. So that if a typical person, they have uh, you know, a portfolio of stocks and bonds and commodities, and it's an attempt to smooth out the cycles and the fluctuations of markets, that that is a de facto 
short vol strategy. And so the idea of actually selling vol, explicitly uh, shorting volatility, is kind of not that different from traditional investing. Oh, I 100% agree. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the payoff profile or kind of the the distribution of returns for being long stocks or you know or, or long bonds or, or like long uh like, let's say like long carry the, the carry trade in fx uh it's all very similar to being short volatility i think mm. being short vol is just a more explicit way of assuming that risk but yeah it's it's all the same risk i mean if you're if you're like a, a credit manager, you know, who, who buys you know, high yield bonds, you're implicitly shorting vol just just through the, the fixed income space. Or even if you're just long stocks, I mean, you're implicitly short vol. I mean, you get 2008, you get 50 percent drawdown. I mean, right. that's not really that much different from from shorting hmm. vol. But wait, let me take the other side of that argument, because I have seen <laughs> critics who have said we have all the, these new sellers of volatility in the market. Uh, some of them have called them uh, tourists in the volatility market. And the argument that they sometimes put forth is that these this might be you know kind of patronizing, but they say these guys aren't experts. They might not know what they're doing when it comes to selling vol using specific you know options instruments, that sort of thing. Do you think there's any basis for that? I think there's some basis to it. Uh, I think it's been maybe a little bit overblown. Uh, in general, the people who sell vol are, are quite careful about doing it. Uh, so in other words, I think people who sell vol generally, they they generally like to size things based on a worst case scenario. So if you're if you're if you make a living selling vol, then generally you're always thinking about well, okay, like what if the next 2011 happens or August 2015 when you you remember when the, on the Monday when markets were were down. I don't know, like five percent, basically no reason. The Dow crashed, I think, a thousand points at the exactly. Spurs were limit down overnight. Um, you're you're always thinking about those type of events, and I think that's how you size your risk. So if if vol is very low, then you're gonna keep in mind that vol has a, a much larger, uh, much more room to rise, and you're you're gonna implicitly size down your bets. But I, I do think there could be something to be said for just more people or or more different people who normally wouldn't be uh, looking at vol so closely, um, kind of getting into the short vol game. Um, yeah, I think there is some risk for that. And I think you've seen it in the dynamics of vol. Like if you look at just how quickly uh, the VIX can spike from low levels and how quickly it, it reverts back down, um, I think that's there's something to be said for kind of, I, I guess, money that's, that's quickly coming in and out of the space. Um, so yeah, I think volatility of vol itself has, has kind of risen. Um, and I think it, it could be partially due to uh, just short vol becoming a more popular strategy. Now, all right, we talked about how uh, how cheap vol is or how low vol is. And so I think that naturally raises the question, well, is this a good time to buy protection? I'm not going to ask you to make a call right now, but I, but thinking about that, okay, so volatility is cheap. Uh, it's, you know, people know there seems to be uh, a mood of sort of um, complacency, perhaps suggested by the low volatility. But as you pointed out, you can never really buy vol. You can only rent it. So it's not like you can just lock in these prices and forget it. Uh, so what does that mean for someone who's like, yeah, I'm pretty optimistic, but vol is cheap here, so I'll just buy some to protect myself? Does that kind of thinking work? I think it tends not to work. I think I think the smart way to think about buying protection is to budget for it in advance. So in other words, you're thinking, okay, I'm 
I'm willing to pay, uh, you know, I'm willing to pay X percentage of my AUM on on protection. And, and to think about this in advance, right? So think like, okay, I'm going to buy some protection and I'm willing to lose, I don't know, 50 bips on this this year. Uh, I don't really think it makes a ton of sense to buy vol just because it's low, because, um, I mean, we've done a lot of kind of studies on this and we found that actually um, vol being low is a good predictor of vol being low going forward. <laughs> um, so it's a good predictor of itself. Um, and you can end up kind of getting burned on this carry cost for a very long time. Uh, so I think that's that's the danger is that you end up getting stuck into a trade that you never kind of budgeted for to begin with. But there's something to be said for just that, you know, big, the beginning of the year, or the beginning of the quarter, deciding, OK, I'm going to spend X on protection this year. I think that makes a lot more sense than than buying vol just because it's low. OK, well, speaking of buying protection, uh, there has been, I guess, something of a celebrity created <laughs> in the volatility market, and that has to be a person known as 50 cent. Um, and the reason is it the rapper? Known... <laughs> yes, we are now going to talk about uh, early 2000s hip hop, Joe. Um, no, uh, the reason he's called 50 cent, he or she is because they've supposedly been buying, you know, these roughly half a dollar each clips of VIX call options on a regular basis. And people started noticing it. Uh, Provit actually, I think was one of the first, if not the first, to really write about it. Provit, why why did 50 Cent become such a talking point in the market? It's a really interesting question. I, I think, firstly, the, the name, honestly. <laughs> it is a catchy nickname. Um, but just like among traders, so among people who watch this space closely, uh, it was quite fascinating to see such honestly such huge flow and outright vix call buy and we've never seen for for years i mean we had seen people main buying call spreads or, or or trying to limit their you know limit the premiums they pay but for someone to just come in and just repeatedly uh just buy these vix calls uh, and you know when you when you trade like that everyone knows it's you right like people come up with nicknames about you um so for someone to just come out and outright just always every single time buy 50,000 vix calls for 50 cents i don't care what strike just pay 50 cents um that's very unusual behavior um so that that type of that type of trading that type of flow it just definitely gets noticed by market participants is that a good idea? Is that a good strategy? Is there a type of investor for whom it makes sense to just have this permanent bid in? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense for someone who wants to own protection. Do I think that's the best way of owning protection? Well, probably not. I think there's maybe more other things you could, there's other ways you could go about trading and maybe be less obvious about it as well. But um, this is definitely not like some kind of doomsday trader. Like that, I guess that's kind of what I've seen in a lot of the articles going around is people, people trying to paint it uh. as, you know, it, that makes it sound more exciting. But in reality, it's probably just, I think, like a large sovereign wealth fund or institutional asset manager that's that's executing a hedge for, for their book. So they definitely have something else against it. Like maybe they're just long stocks or who knows, maybe they're actually short vol and massive size and, and that's their tail hedge. And just to be clear, when you say it's a VIX call, that means it's a option tied to the VIX. Correct. In other words, if the VIX should go above 20, I think that's been his average strike, then then they'll, they'll pay out. We have time for just uh, one or two more questions. Tracy, don't you want to ask your question about whether uh, the VIX is broken? <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
You've just handed me a loaded uh, grenade. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> yes, I have a question. If the VIX is pervasively low, despite what are ostensibly a lot of concerns in the market, and despite, you know, we do see some abrupt moves in various asset classes every once in a while. Um, does that mean the VIX is broken? And also, sorry, let me just add one more thing onto that question, because that's not enough for you. The, the proliferation of products, exchange-traded products tied to the VIX, there's mm. some criticism that those specifically are basically creating a feedback loop to the VIX, which is artificially suppressing it in some way and increasing volatility of volatility, as you pointed out. Is there any, any uh, logic in those claims? Both very good questions. Um, let me just address the first part. Uh, do we think the VIX is broken? Um, so this is really something we've seen a lot more more attention paid to. Um, people kind of contrasting the low level of VIX with the high political uncertainty. Uh, it's mainly the political uncertainty that people point to, um, but there is a little bit of you know economic uncertainty out there as well. Uh, I, I think the important point to remember is that the VIX only measures short term option price short-term option prices, specifically over the next 30 days. So do we think something's going to happen over the next 30 days? Well, maybe not. We don't know the exact timing. We don't, you know, there's now been a special counsel appointed to investigate Trump. I mean, who knows when the next memo or leak is going to hit, but we don't know the exact timing of that. And, and so that that makes these, these short-term bets and volatility very expensive. And people don't want to own short day protection for that reason, because most likely it's going to expire worthless. You know, the, the rent is, is super, super high if you try to trade short-term vol. Um, so I, I think that's that's the reason why the VIX is is maybe a little bit lower than people think it should be is because it's a measure of short term vol and these these uh, this uncertainty that people are worried about is is more general it's a more long it's a more long term uncertainty. Um, do I think long term vol? You know that's, that's another that's another tangent in itself. But do I think long term vol is too low? I think it's approaching low levels and look I, I think it's worth buying. It's something I've been writing about that people should maybe look at owning long term vol because that's really where you get the uncertainty premium. That's where uncertainty premium should be priced in is maybe like one year volatility or even longer than that. So I think that's that's where people should be looking. Um, the, the short dated stuff is just really going to be affected most by that that high carrier or rent cost that we've talked about. And it's so hard to time this stuff in the very short term. So your next question about uh, exchange traded products. Um, I think that those have kind of been the primary vehicle for for the so-called vault tourists to enter the space. Um, so in other words, um, exchange traded products like the XIV uh, or the the SVXY, these are ETFs which, which uh, essentially will go up, will increase in value um, when when the VIX or, or VIX futures decrease, and they're they're basically going to be implicit um, recipients of that carry cost. So yes, we have seen a lot more interest in those products, and probably from people who don't know that much about vol trading. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, this is getting a little bit too technical, but yeah, like due to the way these kind of levered products have to rebalance themselves at the end of the day, um, they can contribute to high volatility in the VIX itself. And I think that's the main change you've seen as these products have gained traction is, is really that the VIX itself um, tends to spike much, much more rapidly and also come back um, from, from high levels much more quickly. Uh, I just want to make one really quick observation and ask a very tiny question before we go. So the XIV, which is that short VIX ETF betting, shorting volatility, since uh, late 2010, it's up nearly sevenfold, whereas the S&P itself hasn't quite doubled. So shorting vol has been extraordinarily profitable, 
trade even if you're just a tourist and do it through an exchange traded product uh pravich and Tawangvanich of macro risk advisors fascinating topic great perspective really appreciate having you on thank you So, Joe, I don't know about you, but I will never call the VIX the fear gauge ever again. I probably will just because I'm not <laughs> like that sophisticated. And when you're on, you know, on I, I say stupid stuff. But no, I, I, I think I'm pretty disciplined about a not calling it a measure of fear. I try not to say cliches like, oh, it's really scary how complacent everyone is. That's a sign mm-hmm. that everything is going to fall apart. I think I I think I don't fall into uh, some of the obvious uh, VIX traps, but uh, I'm sure I fall into many. Yeah, but it is, it's a really good discussion to have because so many people point to the VIX and say, oh, right. you know, like markets are complacent because the VIX is at right. a 30 year low and they never really have the conversation about what's happening both within right. and around the VIX. And as Provit was pointing out, a lot has changed over the past six or seven years, right? Yeah, I think there are two really sort of important things that I took away. One is just this idea that, well, you know, the VIX is low because volatility is low. Volatility is low because, you know, it's sort of the general environment. So it's not necessarily the VIX per se saying something, but it's the overall market. But I love that discussion about this that you sort of, uh, you know, asked about the structure of volatility markets, who are the natural buyers, who are the natural sellers, how have the natural buyers and sellers changed with some of these uh, opportunities for vol tourists? I think that is sort of a incredibly important topic that I imagine we'll, uh, we'll be talking about a lot in the future. Yeah, but Joe, I do worry about, um, I guess, the tail wagging the dog here, right? And the idea that you do have products, lots of products that are now tied to this one index that seem to be affecting it um, either you know, by suppressing it or on days when the VIX starts moving up by um, making it move up faster than it otherwise would. That, that worries me a little bit. Uh, maybe I'm like 50-50 on this question. So I think there's probably stuff lurking out there in the market that one day you know, we could have more events like August 2015 or you know, God forbid, October 1987, where we have these mm-hmm. automatic things in place that exacerbate moves rather than curb them. On the other hand, I think stuff's quiet because stuff's quiet. And we every day we look at the what's going on in the S&P 500 or the Dow, and it's up two points or down two points. And so in light of that, it feels very intuitive that uh, we're not seeing any sort of signs of life and volatility in markets. But this, the, but your general idea that there could be things under the surface that if the coil springs, that will uh, accelerate the moves rather than curb them, I think is a pretty legitimate worry. And I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, we're recording this podcast several days before it uh it's actually going to air. So who knows? We could be in a complete, by the time people are listening to this, we could A, be in a completely uh, different volatility regime. We may have even uh, jinxed this low volatility period. So That's your uh, insurance hope- policy, Joe. You are literally buying volatility protection on the podcast right now. That's, that's exactly right. I have just essentially bought a de facto, uh, de facto VIX contract on the, option, on the podcast 
to guarantee, to hedge against <laughs> this podcast being worthless. Exactly right. <laughs> All right, that is it for this episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our fabulous producer, Sarah Patterson, at Sarah Pat with two T's. Thanks for listening. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.